Welcome to the Shilakama Extractive Podcast. As I continue my conversations with uh, my guests on the subject of fossil fuels and climate change. Today I'm pleased to welcome Karina Lidvak. Karina serves on the boards of ENI, where she chairs the Sustainability and Scenarios Committee. She's a founder and executive board director of Chapter Zero, a project sponsored by the World Economic Forum to mobilize non-executives to be effective stewards of their company's climate change transition strategy. Karina had a 25-year career primarily in finance, and that was when I met her uh, in the city of London. And together we served as advisors to Bruder Lafond, the former chairman and CEO of Lafarge. Karina, welcome to the Sheila Kama Executive Podcast. It's wonderful to speak with you after so long. Thank you, Sheila. It's truly an honor to be here today and, and welcome to all our listeners. Thank you. So I thought I'd, I'd focus on a couple of things in our conversation today, which is basically what we are seeing in terms of uh, the response by financiers. So uh, one of the things that struck me is the announcement in January by the CEO of the largest fund manager, BlackRock, as well as Prince Charles and JP Morgan and BP adding to the momentum. What impact, if any, do you think these actions will have on the pace of the energy transition? You know, BlackRock has been moving in this direction for the last three or so years uh, with the uh, chairman and chief executive, Larry Fink, sending his famous annual letter to CEOs, to the CEOs of the companies in BlackRock's portfolio. This year's letter took it to a whole new level. He came out and, uh, you know, said that BlackRock was going to put uh, climate change at the center of its engagement priorities, that the company was going to uh, vote against the renewal of certain board directors if it felt that they were not properly fulfilling their responsibilities in the boardroom to put climate change at the center of their corporate strategies. And that had a tremendous impact. Certainly, I can say from our perspective, you know, in the boards that I serve on, um, it really lifted uh, the attention because up until then, there was generally speaking, there was a perception in boardrooms that some investors care about this, but many investors don't. And the biggest ones don't really. They may say it, but they don't really follow through. And then suddenly with this, this statement, which was so uh, unambiguous, it really got the message across that it's now the big guys that are taking this seriously. And you know, BlackRock's been followed by Vanguard, uh, which had not been particularly present in this space, uh, State Street, Global Advisors, which had moved um, you know, a little bit and is now moving faster. So you're seeing all of the big players in the asset management field really, really raising the temperature on this topic. So you are right that uh, this sets a, a very high bar and, and takes the notion of responsible finance to a completely uh, new level. But isn't there the risk that uh, the leverage that these big finances have moves the responsibility of monitoring investors with respect to environment from regulators to the investment space. What, what is the role then of, of the regulator in this space in future? Huh, that's an interesting question. Um, so, you know, I think that there are several um, drivers that uh, influence 
decision-making in the boardroom. One of them, of course, is regulation because, you know, we are required to comply with the rules. Um, regulation has um, not kept pace with the uh, recommendations, I should say, uh, strong urgings of the scientific community. There's been a real lag. There's been, you know, regulatory paralysis. Um, and the fact that uh, the investors are now upping the ante is complementary to the regulatory drivers. It is very important because it makes it makes climate change not just a compliance issue, but a strategic issue. If investors see this as crucial to our commercial success as a company, um, if we face the possibility of capital flight because we fail to address the climate risks that are facing our company, then we have a really big problem. Compliance is the first step, but we really need to look at this strategically and figure out how, in some cases, we have to completely reposition our company. Sometimes, it, as in the case of oil and gas companies, it does require, frankly, a radical transformation of our business models. And that's what you're starting to see in the sector. Hmm. So it's interesting because you recognize that in order for us to maintain momentum, we need more than just the regulator. We also need uh, financiers. But, but here is uh, something uh, worth considering. Is there a risk that as we gather momentum, because everybody suddenly comes to the party, that the unintended consequence is that uh, we fail to recognize just how intertwined the fossil fuel industry is to our lives on an everyday basis and begin to promise potentially more than we can deliver in terms of the Paris Agreement's targets, for instance? Well, for a start, the Paris Agreement targets that were agreed in 2015 and then were accompanied by the so-called national uh, contributions, the NDCs, um, the NDCs fell way short of the actual goal. So we have a lot of work to do to get ourselves on track for where we need to be. But your question about unintended consequences and failed promises is a very valid one. You know, any company that steps up and says, we commit to the Paris goals, which means we commit to being net zero across our entire value chain um, by 2050 or indeed earlier, um, as companies, we need to make sure that we have fully mapped, costed, tested, you know, all the technologies that we will bring to bear to get us to that destination point. And what you often have are companies who make declarations that are really aspirations. They don't, they're not backed up by a really um, robust and detailed um, roadmap to get there. Um, I, you know, I'm proud to say that the company on whose board I serve, E&I, uh, took six years to come out with a plan because it wasn't going to come out with one unless it was in a position to demonstrate that it could deliver on every element of that plan. And so in our case, um, every step has been fully mapped, costed, tested, et cetera. And to your point about um, you know, dealing with the fallout, you can't just simply say that you're going to stop producing energy 
in a certain way, if you haven't figured out how you're going to produce energy in a clean way to continue to service that demand. Our intention is not to shrink and disappear. Our intention is to continue to thrive and deliver what it is that our customers want. Our customers don't specifically want barrels of oil um, or you know tanks of gas. What they want is heat, cooling, light, power, and mobility. It doesn't matter whether that comes from uh, fossil fuels or from electrons, from the sun or from wind. So our we you know our our responsibility is to supply that demand, um, but it's also to supply that demand in such a way as to conserve our planet and make sure that we still have you know a safe place to inhabit uh, for our grandchildren. And so you know, and any company that embarks on this on this journey needs to have thought through how they're going to continue to satisfy the demands of their customers. And also there are a whole plethora of other, you know, considerations to do with, you know, uh, employees and communities. Um, You know, we can't just abandon our workers and say, sorry, you're obsolete. We're going to hire different people or indeed walk away from the commitments we've made in, in, in the various communities in which we operate. Hmm. So I'm going to challenge you and suggest that you you make it a hell of a lot easier than it is. Here's why. Uh, Your company and other oil companies have different constituents. You've dealt with the customers. And and I get it that there's a certain expectations for responsible uh, energy mix, if you wish. But there is another uh, very important stakeholder, which is the shareholders. Your companies, like others, will have made huge investments uh, in projects, in engineering systems, and et cetera. To the extent of that, the world moves away from fossil fuels. What damage do you envision in terms of the failure to recoup the investment made in these mega oil and gas development projects in the world today? No, that's a great question. And under no circumstances can we propose a transition plan that doesn't keep our investors whole. Now, we consider that investing in mega projects that have a 40, 50 year life on them and, you know, typically involve great outlays in the first six, seven, eight years, and then the cash returns coming in later, that's no longer a valid proposition for our shareholders, because we anticipate that that demand curve for our products is going to bend downwards quite steeply. So what we've reimagined in our business is a portfolio mix that um, sees an ever-growing share of clean energy and um, a mix of fossil assets that increasingly tilt towards the shorter lived projects so that we avoid that very risk of stranding that you alluded to. So at this point, any has declared um, that it will no longer pursue the large, highly complex, um, long lived products. It's going to pursue shorter term, near field, much lower risk, high cash return projects um, with a view to extracting as much cash as possible in order to fund the company's transition into clean energies. Um, and so you're, you're, seeing, you're seeing a shift in the way 
for example, that we, we reward our executives, um, we're no longer trying to maximize uh, the, the replacement of our reserves. We're no longer trying to maximize production you know, with no constraint. We're looking to optimize uh, production so that it peaks in line with where we see you know, demand peaking and more importantly, our strategy um, unfolding. We see that our uh, oil production will peak in 2025, our gas production will peak in 2030, and it will progressively reduce as our assets naturally deplete. And we will do ongoing investments to maintain a certain level of production to continue to throw off cash. But the risk would have been to plow large amounts of capital into projects that were going to, you know, were, that were expected to deliver large cash returns in 10 or 20 years. And we just don't see that happening anymore. So we have specifically, you know, designed this in such a way as to avoid having stranded assets. We want our investors to benefit from this. And our pledge to our investors is to keep them whole. Hmm. So uh, I, I grant you that it's very likely that uh, many fossil fuel producers will take, if you wish, uh, an, an untraditional short-term view of investment, uh, especially with respect to fossil fuels. But that also uh, creates problems for another uh, of your stakeholders, which is the countries that today are and dependent on fossil fuels, whether it is Algeria to the north with uh, gas or Nigeria to the west and then Angola. And for that matter, countries like Mozambique and Tanzania in Africa, not to mention uh, the EAUs, the Gulf states, etc. What then, as the, the, the world uh, withdraws uh, major investments in fossil fuels, what of the economies of these countries. To be fair, Karina, this is a, a question I ask everybody because it weighs heavily on me. I, I just can't get my head around the economic justice and the moral argument uh, that, you know, all of a sudden the future for these countries is bleak. Well, Sheila, it weighs on me too, quite frankly. I mean, this is the thing that really keeps me up at night because because the safety of the planet is going to uh, require us to make some really disruptive changes to the way we have run our global economy. And there will be winners and there will be losers. And our, you talk of, of moral, you know, moral responsibility. Our, our moral responsibility is twofold. On the one hand, it's to protect the planet. Um, and let's remember that those who are going to be disproportionately affected by unchecked climate change are the very people in the poorer countries. Because we in the rich countries have the means to, you know, build flood defenses and, you know, not that we're going to solve it by any means, we are going to suffer too, but we are to some degree less exposed than the hundreds of millions of, of, of people who reside in uh, very vulnerable parts of the world. So from a moral perspective, we have an undeniable responsibility to check climate change and redesign our global economy to avert it to the extent that we possibly can. 
The other side of that coin is that for the very reasons that you lay out, we have a responsibility to help these petrostates wean themselves off their dependence on oil and gas. We've, as, as, as IOCs, as international oil and gas companies, we've been a party to growing that dependence. Uh, it's been a symbiotic relationship for decades. Um, and, and therefore, we, we face a twin challenge, which is to find clean, clean sources of energy and to sustain and to enable these countries to diversify away from their dependence on oil and gas. And we have no alternative. It is what we have to do. And this is a responsibility that is shared. Not to, I mean, Business has its role to play. It is also a policy question. It is an intergovernmental question. It's a geopolitical question. And so the voice of the business community must be heard in these policy debates around technology transfer, um, financial, um, you know, transfers from from north to south, from from west to east. Uh, we we have to do it. There is no other way. And um, and so you know, companies are going to have to play their part in terms of technological innovation and taking risks, not just in their home countries of the OECD, where we know that the policy environment favors that kind of transition, where we know that the public is now well aware of the need and is in fact demanding that we transform ourselves, we are going to have to play an equally constructive role in the countries that have grown to be completely dependent on oil and gas. Hmm. Uh, speaking of uh, uh, you know, the OECD countries, one of the things we see is the pressure, of course, that has been uh, brought to bear uh, upon a, a large all producers. The, the recent case uh, of Shell losing uh, the legal case brought by the NGO is a case in, in point. So you could argue too that it, it's one thing for international oil companies to take the initiative like ENI and have a long-term strategy, but in effect they fail to do so at their own peril because their own constituents in the north are pushing them. Is that not so, uh, Karina? Precisely. I mean, this this judgment in in the Netherlands obviously pushes the boundaries dramatically compared to, you know, the legal landscape as we saw it only you know only two weeks ago, but um, but that's the direction of travel. Um, so the courts found that the companies lagged uh, the the commitments that had been made at national level and came down very hard on Shell. Uh, remains to be seen whether um, that judgment stands um, in the next level because it will be appealed. Remains to be seen whether it will be emulated in other, uh, in other countries. My personal view is that it's inevitable that we will end up going in that direction, whether, whether the courts are in the lead or the legislators and regulators are in the lead, uh, it's hard to say. The courts certainly have um, a legal case around the fact that there, you know, there are obligations to future generations. That was the basis on which this case was won. Um, and you know, there's another major case in France that um, reasoned along similar lines, uh, where the where the um, it, it, it wasn't a corporate defendant, uh, but nevertheless, 
this is this is the direction of travel. We are rather than try to fight it in the courts, we really ought to concentrate our attention on finding the best possible way to affect that transition. And in particular, to make sure that those who are on the losing side of this equation are protected with retraining, reskilling, investment in other diversified um, you know, sources of economic prosperity. That's where the challenge lies, not in fighting this in court and not mm. in fighting this you know, in the lobbying departments of you know, the trade associations and so forth. We all have to be pulling in the same direction. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you that the the ruling by the Dutch court is indicative of the shape of things to come. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that whether or not the appeal by uh, Shell is successful, it, it doesn't change that the genie is out of the bottle. And that, uh, you know, uh, strategic, uh, sensible and pragmatic uh, directors ought to simply get the message and take uh, assume moral authority and move forward in the direction. Because if 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 uh, Shell wins the appeal, it still doesn't lose in the uh, court of public opinion, much less That's the court of uh, you know advocacy groups. And that I think is where the battle will finally be uh, uh, decisively lost or won. That's exactly right. That's exactly mm. right. Sometimes you have to ask yourself whether it's worth fighting a case on its legal merits when you've lost already. Um, and, 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 you know, I think the difficulty here is, is twofold. One is that the courts got involved. The difficulty from the standpoint of, you know, of the companies who are on the losing side of this court battle. The other difficulty is that, is that the, the courts have set a numerical target. Um, which is un, unheard of. Uh, typically, uh, you see this in, in, in policy targets by, set by governments, and you see it in, in companies themselves who you know, take a look at their business and do a bottom-up analysis of what they think they can achieve in terms of reductions. And this is a number that was simply imposed on the company by the courts on the basis of what the scientific guidance is saying. And it is, it's setting a pace that is considerably more, you know, ex- aggressive than than Shell or, fact, frankly, any other company had yet, um, you know, yet adopted. Uh, I think typically what you see in very very large emitters, whether they be in oil and gas or 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 steel or mining, et cetera, is that the shape of the curve, you know, the emissions in the early year, the emissions reductions in the early years tend to be slower. We're basically, you know, we're taking a super tanker of a business and bending the arc of its of its trajectory. And the early part of that bend doesn't happen at a very sharp angle. The, the, the changes accelerate in the medium and long term. And so forcing a number, a very high number immediately, that I think is a difficult thing to meet. Uh, I can't speak for, I certainly can't speak for Shell. I can't speak for, you know, many, many companies, but generally speaking, that's, that's the progression that you see because these assets, they take a while to run down. And, um, you know, the only way that you can achieve immediate reductions is by shutting down vast amounts of capacity. And that's when you have major asset stranding and major financial losses. And so, you know, we, we, we try to do this in an orderly and programmed way, but also knowing that we're not going to continue to throw money 
at an industry that is headed for obsolescence. Hmm. Uh, speaking of uh, obsolescence, uh, typically in uh, extractive projects, uh, part of uh, the long-term project plan is uh, decommissioning and uh, companies can fund project decommissioning because they have put money in the kitty uh, over the years. If indeed uh, companies are suddenly forced to shut down before the end of life of that particular project in economic, not geological terms, where will the money to fund the physical decommissioning and dismantling of this huge on-land and offshore uh, oil and gas uh, uh, engineering systems and uh, assets? Where uh, will it come from? It's an excellent question. It's another one that's on my list. Um, we've been looking at that. Um, you know, it's a it's, it's part of the answer is you shouldn't be here in the first place. You should have thought of this before. You should have had you should have planned the life of your assets in such a way that they would, you know, um, kind of deplete naturally in time. But of course, if the pace of change is picked up, you are you can be caught flat footed. Um, one way to mitigate that problem is to repurpose existing assets. Uh, for new businesses, new new production of you know different types of energy or different activities. So uh, you know what you're seeing is um, uh, uh, offshore oil oil platforms that um, are being repurposed to host uh, wind generation. There are, I mean, I'm not sufficiently expert to go into you know great detail about the variety of ways in which this can happen, but but that is exactly where you know we and others are are looking to um, you know minimize the the economic pain. One thing that any has done is it's sitting on a vast portfolio of um, industrial assets, industrial land that it was basically forced to take on by the government when the company was privatized. It's, you see this also in, this, in the former Soviet Union where you know, big companies are, are privatized and you throw in dirty old assets together with the new productive ones. And so we have you know, very significant amounts of um, post-industrial land that is contaminated and that we have been progressively cleaning up um, over the last few decades, what we're doing is converting these um, th these properties into solar generation facilities. Why? Because they are very well situated. They are sitting on top of all of the uh, infrastructure that you normally have to build from scratch when you're building a greenfield solar facility. These are you know these are former chemical factories. Um, yeah, they're mainly, that's mainly what they are is chemical factories. And they're lo located on the edge of town with roads and, and um, electric transmission lines and, you know, everything that you need to plug it straight into the grid uh, without having to build it and pay for it. So these are ways that you can kind of, you know, convert um, assets that would otherwise have to be completely dismantled. Um, and 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 repurpose them in, in an economically 
uh, productive way. But, you know, there is going to be some pain. Undoubtedly, there is going to be some pain. And accelerating the shutdown of these industries is going to involve a cost. I mean, the Canadian government, interestingly, has um, offered bailout funds to oil and gas companies to accelerate the uh, closure of um, of certain producing uh, fields. So there's a subsidy coming from government, which you know they're using the opportunity of of the post pandemic uh, rebuild to steer uh, the economic uh, the investments in into green economy, and that means closing down the brown economy. Hmm. So uh, really, what you're saying is uh, my, my question, though. Uh, relevant is phrased a little is dated in the way that is phrased because I'm making the wrong assumptions that these uh, engineering processes will be decommissioned. What you're saying is uh, the spirit of entrepreneurship and strategy and innovation will take over to minimize that risk by making giving them a new leash in life and making them part of the solution rather than part of the old uh, uh, problem. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you um, and thinking, there is going to be a change of guard uh, likely then in the hierarchy of international companies, because of course, some of the Fortune 500, Fortune 100, et cetera, uh, have been in the energy, uh, oil and gas business. Do, do you think as uh, these companies reinvent themselves that invariably they will become smaller? Um, you know, I, speaking for, for, for my company, the intention is not to shrink. I do know, though, I do know of peers who have come out and very bluntly declared that they do not consider that they have the skill set to, you know, go from being a, a, a gazelle to a camel. And, um, and they are just going to run down their businesses in the most cost-efficient cash generative way. And that, is mm-hmm. a, and that is a strategy of shrinkage and eventual disappearance without uh, wasting shareholders' money in, in projects that are going to be stranded. And I think that's an entirely valid strategic, uh, you know, formula because the oil and gas industry collectively is going to have to shrink. However, there are going to be companies such as any that have made a a clear decision that they have no intention of shrinking. They have every intention of shrinking one side of the business and extracting the cash from that side of the business in order to fund the rapid growth of a a complex of new businesses. It's going to include um, bio-refining and, um, and um, clean energy generation. So we have a, um, a gas and power division that is converting from uh, fossil power to green power and fossil gas to biogas. And, you know, and, and the chemicals division that is uh, transforming itself into a biochemicals and, and recycled chemicals business. So every piece of the business um, is is being reimagined to fit within a zero carbon world. And our goal is to grow, is to grow those types of green businesses, uh, even as the traditional um, upstream you know, oil and gas development um, gradually 
uh, coasts to uh, near near disappearance. I mean, by 2050, there will be a little bit still uh, that will be compensated for with uh, uh, carbon capture and storage and some natural some substantial amounts of, of uh, natural, um, you know, forestry solutions. Um, but, but by and large, you're looking, if you, if you take a step, step back, you're seeing a transformation. You're seeing a, you know, a substitution of the new for the, the, the new for the old. Hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm interested because you and I have been speaking of corporations, but of course there's corporations and then there's corporations. We have state-owned entities we have publicly listed uh, companies, which are the, the major oil uh, corporations. And, and then we have, uh, if you wish, uh, juniors. My sense is that the pace of preparedness, both in terms of uh, strategic mindset, but also in terms of a tangible uh, roadmap, roadmap rather to uh, divest from fossil fuels to clean energy. This pace is not the same. First, uh, Europe seems to me to be slightly ahead of North America. On the other hand, it seems to me that uh, publicly listed companies, in part because they are in the public domain and, 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 and respond to the public, are a little bit more uh, advanced uh, than state-owned entities. A am I correct or, or are we in effect all on the same page? No, no, you're you're correct, and I think you've been too measured in the way that you framed it. I don't think it's a matter of a little bit ahead or a little bit different. It's significant. Okay, so if you take the European um, IOCs versus the North American ones, which I include Canada, um, the discussion, to the extent it even happens, it's happening more in Canada than the United States, but to the extent that it even happens in the most enlightened Canadian companies, it is still focused on so-called scope one emissions, by which I mean the emissions that oil and gas companies generate from their own direct operations, the drilling, the extracting, the transporting, the refining. What they completely leave out and what the Europeans have recognized they must they must consider and they must manage and, and, and reduce and eliminate are the so-called scope three emissions, which are the emissions that are generated when the when our products are consumed by our customers, right? So um, in, a, in your average barrel of oil, between um, 10 and 15% of the um, emissions from um, shall we say well to uh, you know to final consumption well to wheel is um, accounted for by the customer filling their tank in their cars or the power generation facility you know um, burning gas um, eighty to eighty eighty to eighty five percent of our footprint is accounted for by what our customers do with our products. The Canadian and American companies are ignoring that and looking strictly at that 10 to 15% that, um, that is generated directly by their own operations. One, because it's much easier to control. I mean, you can, you can decide for yourself what, you know, what efficiency measures you introduce, but then much more easily than you can, you know, tell your customers what to do. But more importantly, it's it's 
it's the elephant that's frankly crushing everything else in the room. Um, you know, it, it, taking responsibility for one scope three emissions in the oil and gas sector, or same goes for coal and, and iron ore, um, is tantamount to saying we need to stop producing what we produce. It is our product that is incompatible with climate safety, not how we produce it. And so for years, mm. the industry had been focused on, you know, how we produce a product that is fundamentally unsustainable. We were continuing to produce and to grow production, but to get more and more efficient at producing an unsustainable product. Now what you're seeing companies, oil and gas companies in Europe saying is, we need to rethink the actual product. You're not seeing that mm. yet in the United States and Canada. So that's interesting talking about the product because most people think of the product as oil. Uh, you've been in the industry, think of it as being petroleum, which is essentially both oil and gas and even more hydrocarbons, which would then uh, rope in coal. So I wanted to just speak about that for a minute because uh, just uh, recently, the assumption was that gas might be in the interim a better alternative. And yet more recently, uh, we are not seeing this. Where are we with gas now? It, it is, still, is, is gas still part of the interim solution or are we now going full speed and just saying away with petroleum? Another great question. Um, so if you had had this conversation even two years ago, the answer would have been gas is the bridge fuel. Gas is unquestionably the preferable option to coal. So let's let's do fuel switching as soon as possible and and you know replace coal-fired power plants with gas-fired power plants. It takes emissions down by 50%. That's a huge win. Um, so it's definitely the lesser evil. It's a bit like filtered cigarettes, but um, but ultimately <laughs> the pace of change um, really has to be lifted. If you look at the recent um, scenario, 2050 scenario issued by the International Energy Agency, uh, we will not get there if we continue to grow gas as, as fast as we can. Gas is going to have to come down too. Um, and, you know, I think the jury is out as to how quickly that gas curve will bend because so much faith had been placed in gas as the near-term, you know, fix the near-term fix to enable us to wean ourselves off coal, but it presents its own problems. And it looks like, you know, gas as a substitute for coal, yes, if it can be abated with carbon capture and storage, but unabated gas, it still contributes mightily to emissions. And we simply haven't got the so-called carbon budget to absorb those emissions. Hmm. So uh, let, let's move to the uh, last uh, couple of questions. And I, I just wanted to talk about the solution space. So uh, research shows that in part due to uh, recent developments, the cost of financing fossil fuels and coal projects is potentially relatively higher than renewables. And investors, because investors traditionally insist on higher returns on these projects. Assuming I, I'm correct, uh, are the consumers likely to enjoy the benefits of uh, lower project costs, or is this just going to go up to the shareholders as we transist from fossil fuels to renewables? How, how do you see this panning out? 
Well, it's interesting because that was pretty much the first question that my CEO got when he unveiled our climate transition strategy. The question he got from one of the um, analysts was, financial analysts was, um, that's a very brave move you've just announced, which is code for that's insane. Um, And um, how how do you uh, propose to manage the execution risk associated with investing in projects that are still quite expensive and appear to generate a significantly lower return than what we've grown accustomed to in the oil and gas business? I mean, you're basically shifting us to a lower return business. How are you going to hang on to your shareholders? And Mm. his answer was the world has changed. The, the risk associated with oil and gas is not, is, it has always been high, which is why we had high risk adjusted returns, but it's going to only get higher. So on a risk adjusted basis, I as CEO see a much better future in moving to a portfolio of assets that yes, return, they have a lower cash return for us, uh, as investors and for our shareholders, but the risk associated with it is so much lower that it's a better it's a better trade for us. Now, when you add to that the fact that like I don't want to understate the the costs associated with building you know large amounts of new capacity in in, in clean energy. On the other hand, the costs keep coming down, and they're coming down faster than we can blink. Um, mm. And so, given that we haven't got a choice and that we must move in the direction of cleaner energy, um, rather than agonize about whether uh, oil and gas is still a a higher return uh, proposition, it's really all systems go on investing in clean energy and investing in technological improvements to improve the the yield. So you're already seeing the very, very largest uh, offshore wind um, facilities with, you know, wingspans that are, are unimaginably large, the size of, I don't know, football fields or something, um, have much higher productivity than, you know, the wind, uh, the, the, the wind, you know, towers that we had only a few years ago. That's the direction of travel. So returns, you know, costs will come down, returns will, will stabilize and improve. But really, it's a question of we just don't have a choice. And oil and gas is going to be oil and the oil and gas sector is going to continue to face the traditional pure oil and gas sector is going to continue to face headwinds and capital flight. Hmm. Uh, Give us a quick take on the uh, supply and demand gap uh, in terms of renewable energy. So in Africa, Latin America and South uh, Asia, the level of access to energy, uh, electricity and other forms of uh, energy is, is very low. Yeah. And these governments are struggling to uh, ramp up. Now, if, if oil and gas were the base, we had a, a challenge. Now, if you take that out of the equation and you, you migrate to wind, solar, turbine, etc., you set up potentially an even lower uh, starting point. So, so my, and then couple that with the increasing affluency in China and India, and then the, the growing demand in the North for energy. Uh, how, how does the supply and demand uh, gap look in the short term uh, if we switch to renewables? You're right to point that out. And um, 
it is not uh, realistic. It is not morally correct. And therefore, it is not a plan that we should pursue to um, compromise the delivery of of energy, the you know the the targets that we've set um, to increase access to energy in all of these countries of Africa and Asia that lack access to uh, energy and access to electricity, that is a goal that absolutely cannot be compromised. And so, you know, th- the focus needs to be on leapfrogging um, what the West. You know, if I were if I were in Indonesia or Malaysia, I would not aspire to reproduce the industrial history that has been, you know, that has been the, the story of of Europe and North America. I would want to leapfrog and start clean. Um, why invest today in a fifty year coal plant that, quite apart from poisoning my residents with, uh, you know, with, with toxic emissions is going to lock me down with an asset that's expensive and and is going to have to be mothballed much sooner than we've projected. So if I were, you know, if I were queen of, you know, any of these countries, I would, I would turn up to, um, you know, to my um, colleagues in the, the, in the North and say, Pull out your checkbooks, ladies and gentlemen. If you want us to play ball with you in reaching net zero, the only way it will happen is if you commit to transferring the very latest technologies to to my country, that you commit to funding it, and in particular to covering the funding gap that currently exists between the cheapest possible coal facility and a state-of-the-art whether it's a fully abated gas plant that is, uh, you know, built together with carbon capture and storage, which has a an incremental cost that is not insignificant, or better yet, even a hybrid facility that has, you know, a big um, a big component of renewables with a um, standby gas facility to to deal with, um, you know, the the um, the intermittency of uh, solar and wind. So until such time as we have achieved, you know, um, uh, the appropriate technological improvements in battery storage, which is another area where we need investment, we are going to continue to need some backup power coming from preferably gas because it's the cleanest of the fossil fuels. But we need to we need to pair that with um, carbon capture and storage. And we need to accelerate the investment in those technologies such as battery storage that are, are going to compensate for the intermittency of of the uh, renewable uh, sources of energy, but I, you know, my uh, message as a, as a country of the South is, I am not playing ball with you until you open your checkbooks. Good for you. So here's my part in short. You know, uh, decades ago, the world embraced fossil fuels to address energy needs to to industrialize, but now we know that actually the world was busy creating a future environmental monster. But that was what science could offer at the time. Yeah. Who is to say that current interventions of the type you and I are discussing and advocating will not fail the test of time too? In other ways, will your great-grandchildren and my great-grandchildren not uh, read about us and think, what the hell were they thinking? In other ways, are we just another delusional generation of humans playing around 
with nature? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that inevitably we will make some mistakes along the way. But I want my great grandchildren to look back on this time and say they did everything they could and more to, um, you know, to deactivate this monster that we've created. And, um, you know, they, they fought against really seemingly insurmountable obstacles because we, this is not an easy battle to win. Um, you know, to the extent that we, that we make some mistakes, uh, let's hope that we have, you know, a, um, an open society that um, enables uh, challenge, enables us to, um, to become aware of where things are going off the rails so that we can course correct as quickly as possible. Um, and, you know, there is often a pressure to suppress bad news. We mustn't fall prey to that, but we just cannot afford to wait for the perfect proven solution. That's really the bottom line is that this house is already on fire and we just have to pull out the hose and hose it down as fast as we can. And there may be some damage along the way, but the alternative is far worse. That's wonderful. Well, that's a good note uh, for us to end this conversation. It's It's been very insightful and I appreciate your taking the time, Karina, to speak to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. These were terrific questions, the ones that keep me up at night. So thank you for adding to my insomnia. 